Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. Jamie Engel didn't aspire to be a rom-com screenwriter. She had a successful career writing young adult fiction, but in 2021, she shifted gears. After attending a rom-com writing workshop, she wrote her first screenplay, and it was picked up by a television production company. The movie is scheduled for release in 2023. In this interview, Jamie shares her story of transitioning to a different genre and the skills she has learned from writing rom-coms, including how to create tension in scenes, the importance of themes in storytelling, and how to create dialogue that shows instead of tells. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you so much for being a repeat guest. We're so excited to hear about where you have gone in the past couple of years with your writing and hear about your journey and also just hear about your expertise. So so tell us a little bit what has happened over the past two years since our last interview with you on the podcast. At that time, you were writing novels. And I think at one point you wrote a blog post and said that maybe you were going to take a break from it. I'm trying to remember exactly the the content of that. But I remember thinking, oh, wow, that happened quickly after our podcast. And then all of a sudden you're, you know, you're becoming a screenwriter. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think it was like around the apocalypse when we spoke. So yeah. I think we all went through this like, what am I doing in my life transition and just evaluating where our time was being spent and what was our purpose of doing what we were doing, good and bad. And I think I was in that spot. 2020 started off amazing. I had like Barnes and Noble bookings and pool visits and, you know, it was going to be a great year. And it ended up being a great year for our family, personally, anyway. But all of that obviously hit the apocalypse. And I just got very discouraged, had a very bad situation, not with Barnes & Noble, but through Barnes & Noble with the distributor. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I'm, I'm spending way too much time as an indie author. And if I can't get into the schools, then I don't have an audience. I can't, I have no one to speak to and I have no one to sell to. And that's what I do. I speak and I sell. So I think after our interview and it was just the timing and I, I just, it, I was done. I love storytelling. I love writing. But my last book, The Pets of Elsewhere that I launched in 2021, I only launched it because one of my friend's daughter's I wrote one of the characters based off of her when she was very little. So her mom said, hey, I want to buy a class set for her school. What price would you give me for that? So I'm like, I'll do 10 books or uh, 30 books at 10 bucks. I'm like, give me $300. And I'm like, well, I guess I'll go publish it. You know, like it was, it was kind of that, that I just felt like I'm, I'm publishing so that my friends who support me can buy my book and that's it. And it just felt like a hamster. And I just thought, 
is there a better way I can spend my time? Is there a better way I can serve my writing gifts? And that's kind of why I pulled away to answer those questions. And so in that period, that in-between period, and you were answering those questions of what's next, what, what did you start to discover? A couple of months after that, I was, I have my real estate license. My husband's a realtor, but I have my license to help him out. And I was working at our local real estate board as the webmaster. And a guy after my class, a new realtor pulled me aside and said, Hey, could you help me out? Uh, I just moved here from LA. I've been in the film industry for years. And I just felt like God was transitioning me into affordable housing in Brevard County. So I'm here. And I said, oh, that's cool. I'm a novelist and I've always wanted to get into movies. And he said, well, let me connect you with my entertainment attorney. We're best friends. He's out in LA and you guys can talk and then just see what can happen from there. Well, <laughs> what happened from there is we, we did talk a couple of times during the apocalypse. And then in December of 2020, he texted me and he was like, hey, do you have any rom-coms? Think Hallmark, strong female lead. I had never written a movie in my life. I had like pretended to write a script. I'd never written an adult, never written a rom-com. You guys know I write stories with a magic touch, fantasy. There's monsters, there's fighting, and it's all like kid books. So naturally I said, let me look and see what I have. <laughs> and I called a friend in LA who I knew was working on rom-coms and he goes, oh, or this, there's a school called Story Summit and they're teaching this weekend on Zoom how to write the Christmas rom-com. Here's a coupon code. You should take it with me. So fast forward to now, I wrote a script. I submitted it to them in February. They loved it. They bought it a year and a half later in June. And we are in production as we speak. Today is December 13th, 2022. And we are in production right now. And through the 15th, we're done. So it'll be a 19-day shoot ending in two days. So when will it okay. be on television? Next, they said 2023. I, I read in an article somewhere spring of 2023, which feels very early to me, but It'll, it'll be on the Up TV Faith and Family Network, which is one of those apps you can grab on your, on your TV system. And then it'll also be on, I, I can't remember the name of the other one. It's like a Canada-based network. So it'll be on network television, which is exciting. So the gap between, you said they loved it in February and they accepted it a year and a half later? Yeah, they went, we went under contract a year and a half later. So in, in February of 21, which was two months after I took the class and wrote my first script, they said, we want this one. So I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. And then in, in September, I get a phone call from California. It's the only reason I answered it because, you know, we all get those spam calls, but it said Los Angeles or whatever. So I'm like, I'll answer it. And it was my director. I'd never met him before. And he was like, hey, so our investors don't want Christmas. So can you change the star of Bethlehem PA into non-Christmas? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, okay. So it was set in Pennsylvania. So I just made it Oktoberfest because apple cider became beer and gingerbread cookies became gingerbread hearts. And I went Oktoberfest and, and made it just Jake. And that's what the movie is called. 
so it was from September of 21 until June of 22 that I got my actual option agreement and signed my contract. What was that moment like that you signed the contract? What can you describe it? It was so cool. We were actually driving home from, we had stayed in Sanibel Island for a week and a hurricane was coming, not the one that devastated it, but like a two months earlier, a hurricane or tropical storm was hitting. So we left a day early and we're driving home from Sanibel and my executive producer, Brian Bird called me and he said, Hey, I just want you to know that we were deciding between two films or two scripts. And we've decided that we're going to go with just Jake. And we'd like to send you a contract to officially purchase your screenplay. And I just remember I had three boys in my car and I'm freaking out and they're all 15. So they're, it's my son and and his cousin and his best friend, and they're all freaking out. And they're like, that's so cool. (laughs) So we had a little mini party in the car. (laughs) That's awesome. I love that. Let's talk about the, like, what did you learn at that summit that you implemented right away that helped you get rocking on that script? I actually took the class again a couple of weeks ago, like to, since, like I said, I'd never written a script before. So I went in this time listening for the actual Christmas part only. And and I got to speak. They brought me in on a panel with three other authors who had taken the class and then optioned a movie or produced a movie. What they really broke down in the class that I loved was the act, the nine act structure, what should happen in each act and what shouldn't happen in each act. Because most, as you know, beginning, middle, end is most stories. And then those might break down into an act one, act two, act three, and act two usually is cut in half. So you really have four acts if you think of it that way. But for Hallmark, they do nine acts. I know Lifetime does like, six or seven acts like it's all based on that commercial break and having that cliffhanger in the right spot so that you can break to commercial and you don't lose your audience but because of streaming that's kind of changing the game of the structure so from taking it two years ago to taking it now it was even different you know with the the parameters but what I walked away with was like a template or a roadmap that I could take a story idea and say, okay, I can put this story in here. And I know that the, the, the meet cute has to happen on this page where the boy and girl meet for the first time and they don't like each other. We know how the story goes. I want to make sure that in, and then it's like every eight to 10 pages from there on out, it's something happens. You have to cliffhanger, cliffhanger. And I think being a novelist first, that was super easy for me because every chapter I write is the cliffhanger. You have to have that. It's really cool. It was a very cool breakdown of, of what a Hallmark movie would look like. Can you, in your own words, describe what a cliffhanger is? I know what a cliffhanger is. Our audience knows what a cliffhanger is, but what are the elements of a really good cliffhanger? So if you're, if you're, writing a novel and you said at the end of every chapter, you have to reintroduce some tension. So people keep on reading or at the end of a scene. So can you tell us what some elements of a good cliffhanger are? A lot of times people will write a chapter and then they just stop. And there's nothing that's forcing me to turn the page. There's no reason for me to keep reading except for I'm reading a book. So I'm going to turn the page. But if anything else comes up, I'm out. So a cliffhanger really is, it's that moment, like you're running from something, someone's chasing you and you're like, 
and you stop and you're on the edge of a cliff looking down. That's how it should feel when people get to the end of your chapter so that they are like, oh my gosh, are they going to jump? Are they going to get pushed? Are they going to turn around and fight? I have to know. And then they turn the page. So that's to me what a cliffhanger should do. And it doesn't have to be an action story. Obviously, it can be a romance or a mystery. It's It's got to be something though, big or small, that causes the reader to feel a need to have to turn that page. And a lot of times, you know, one of my full edits is to go back and read the last page of every chapter and make sure it does that. And if it doesn't, then I need to either go back in the chapter or go forward into the next chapter and find that break and make that the end. So you're writing in a genre that, as you said, is a little bit predictable, right? My husband is a huge Hallmark movie fan. And so we know kind of how it begins and how it ends. And in the middle, there's some variations. How did you make your story fresh or how did you freshen up the cliffhangers or what did you do to put a twist on it, if anything? So what they kind of said in this class that really clarified it to me was when people go to watch these particular movies, we all know the couple's going to get together in the end. That's why we watch them, right? So we're expecting the love story. So the the journey is really that falling in love, falling out of love that we all experience. And when you get married, you don't do that anymore in a sense, you know, I mean, you do, but in a sense, it's like, you don't, you don't do that like in and out high 10 love, you know, zero low. It's, it's not as much like that. So a lot of people will watch these movies and they'll connect with the love element. But beyond that, it's the, the Christmas element. Mine does not have Christmas, but it did originally. So I'm going to go with that side of it first, and then I'll break into the, the Oktoberfest side of it. When people are watching these movies, they're, they're looking for hope. They're looking for nostalgia. They're looking for that warm feeling that you get when you think about Christmas and family and memories. So all of those are the, the elements that are woven throughout the story to make it have that, that feeling you get at the end when they do kiss and everyone lives happily ever after. For just Jake, when I speak to kids, it's always, I don't ever go in and say, hi, I'm an author and you need to have me come talk to your kids so they can buy my books. I always go in with a social issue that is affecting children currently. For, for Clifton Chase, I went in and did the anti-bullying presentation and I wove the book into it. The, the newest one that I'm doing is on voice as a character, as an author, and as a person. And that one is associated with my book, Metal Mouth. And it, it helps kids to think about self-identity, self-worth, and a connection to social media and how our circle of influence for humanity, for our brains is a hundred people. So anything beyond that, we're just like, we're not supposed to experience. So with just Jake, I wanted to make sure that there was that element woven in to make my work different. So the the story is about a country music singer who he can't write his music. So he goes back home and he falls back in love with his high school sweetheart and she teaches music to underprivileged kids. So what ends up happening is he experiences a greater joy and fulfillment teaching the underprivileged kids than he ever did being a superstar. And so the love happens as they both kind of reopen up to themselves, to each other as musicians, because they went to high school together that way. So for me, I always want to make sure that there's some element of a social 
injustice being made right or just a social issue that can can tie in the story that it's not just the attorney and she goes back home and the boy's cute and everyone lives happily ever after and they bake cookies. And of course they do bake cookies, don't get me wrong, but there's always got to be something deeper and more meaningful that somebody can walk away from it and feel challenged to be a better person. I loved that. So when you were coming up with this initial idea for the first draft, did it just come to you? How did it, how did it evolve in your mind? Like what inspired it? Were you watching something? Did you hear a story? So my, my, one of my best friends, Jason Erdzeri and I, we chat all the time and we love breaking stories together. He's read everything I've ever written. And we, we were talking about the rom-com writing. And I was like, dude, I have this idea. The first movie I wrote was Santa Summit, which is the one I'm pitching right now. And then the second one I wrote, I was like, I'm not sure what to do. I kind of, I just don't know where to go. And he said, have you ever heard of Bethlehem PA? And I was like, no. And he goes, you should do a story that takes place in Bethlehem PA because you can do the star of Bethlehem PA. And I was like, that's it. So we like, we broke it back and forth together. And then he's very good with giving me like, like if you were to read the log line, he gives me the log line and then I come, I go and come up with the story and it, we just work great that way. So he inspired that one, gave me the location, which didn't end up being in the movie, but it is in the book. So I, I, lots of different places from books and movies to be inspired by. And this one in particular was birthed in his knowledge of Bethlehem, PA. Who knew? I didn't know. Can you define what a logline is for our audience? <laughs> so a logline is that, that really short sentence or two that gives you pretty much your main character, their, their need that they need to overcome by the end of the movie and some idea of the setting or the genre. So it's very short. It's not, it's not a synopsis, but it's a very short synopsis summary. Like if you were to, you know, when you go through Netflix and you click through and you get those little blurbs, that's kind of what a log line would look like. So in your writing of your, your, your nine acts, so within each act, you have how many scenes would you say? Oh, that's a good question. I've never counted, but a couple, I would say a couple. It's, it's eight, eight to 10 pages. Usually their first act is like 20 pages. The next one's like 10 to 12, I believe. And then all the rest are eight to 10 pages, give or take. So in that writing, was there a different way? Did you think about dialogue different differently? Because you don't have a lot of explanation, right? Or description, yeah. right? You have dialogue pretty much and everything else is shot, right? So how did you think about these scenes differently, maybe from your novels? So when, when you're writing the dialogue, you, you mostly have to go back through and rewrite it because you're going to write, especially as a novelist, you're going to write the conversations like we're talking because that's what you do in a book. You want it to sound realistic. So you write like how people talk. But when you think about a movie, you quote movie lines, don't you? Like everybody does. We have our movie. Like I could probably spend an entire day just quoting the Princess Bride lines and have a full normal working day and, and totally make sense. So when you're thinking dialogue in movies, it's not how people talk. It's what people are trying to say. 
So you want to say it in a way that gets the message across, but doesn't actually say like, I like your blue shirt, Melissa. If you wouldn't say that, you would say, have you ever seen Willy Wonka and she ate the blueberry pie gum? And same thing. You're saying the same thing, but you're doing it in a way that gives you a little more layer and a little more depth to the character because now you know I'm a nerd. I like Willy Wonka. You know, I see the world from a certain perspective because I pointed out her shirt was like that. So there's a lot told as opposed to saying, Melissa, I like your blue shirt, which is what I'd write in a book. What I hear you saying is then that dialogue, even in screenplays and movies, television is a way to show your characters, right? It's a way to develop layers within your character, like you just said. That's very yeah, interesting. Yeah, for sure. What else did you have to think differently about from novel writing to screenwriting, screenplay writing? What, what, what was different? Everything's different, but as a novelist, you know story structure. Like I've read a lot of scripts and you're just like, are we going somewhere? Like what is happening? It's just a bunch of cool people doing cool things, but there's no story. And I'm sure you've seen those movies where at the end you're like, I thought we were still in the first act. We never got to a problem. So as a novelist, we have an advantage that we know structure and we know how to tell a story from A to Z. So the hardest thing to remember is when you're, when you're writing a screenplay, you are only writing what the character or the audience really, what the audience can see and hear. So everything else doesn't matter. Everything else you have to tell through you know, like she has a statue or a photograph of her and her mom or her screensaver is Darth Vader. You have to show it to reveal those things. And you, you also have to know that you're not the, the wardrobe person and you're not the casting director and you're not the cinematographer. So you don't want to say bird's eye view on the coffee mug on the table that the the white girl with the blonde hair wearing the cardigan that says, I love chocolate reaches for like, that's none of that is your job. That is the casting director, the wardrobe, the setting, the prop, you know, master, that's not you. So it's very hard to, to paint a detailed picture for a hundred people to understand the story you're trying to tell while also staying in your lane and writing it in such a way that they want to read more and they understand your story and they're going to project it the way you want them to. So it's a, it's a teetering line to, to do all of that. That's so interesting. So say your character is a Star Wars fan and they have a, they have a Darth Vader screensaver. That's not something that you would inform the people you're working with in your no, script? That you would, because that reveals the character. Okay. You know, if, if it's something that is revealing the character, but if you're just, when you're writing a book, like you see the character, you see what they're wearing, you see their skin color, you see their hair color, like all of those things are important to you and you want to create a visual for your reader. But in a, in a movie, I have no idea who they're going to cast. So unless it is crucial that my main character is Asian or Indian or something for the storyline, then I don't put that. I, I just have my own interpretation. I, I'm welcome to cast it how I want to. Like I have one TV show called The Marked and it's a bunch of kids. They all are the Greek gods. They just forgot and they all end up at this school and it's kind of reveals itself. I had a, 
executive producers say it was like a dark Harry Potter. And I said, <laughs> yes, thank you, sir. But I did describe them with their ethnicity because that's how I saw them. And there's there's 12 characters in this pantheon. So I wanted to make sure that whoever was casting it, it was very inclusive to make sure that all 12 kids didn't look alike. They have to be very different. They're all different representations of Greek gods. But in a norm, like in my rom-com, I have no preference. The, the people they cast look absolutely nothing like the characters I had in my mind. And they're great. And some of the scenes, I don't have to describe everything distinctly, but I want to paint enough of an image. So in book writing, you're not supposed to say he was morbidly upset. You're not supposed to write those kinds of things. You're supposed to show it. But kind of in a in a script, you're supposed to kind of do the opposite where you would say, you know, he he walked in the room like like a guy who likes to be alone. You don't write that quite in a book. You show it more. But in a movie, you want to get to that point. And he, he walked in the room like he thought he was Clint Eastwood. You guys know exactly the guy I'm talking about. That's all you need so that you can go cast it and you can go film it and shoot that scene. So it's very, I can't, I can't write a book and a movie at the same time. Like I was just editing the novel, the Just Jake novel, and I'm editing Dreadlands book two. No problem. I, I'm writing another book, like no problem. But if I put a script in, nope, I can't do it because it's such a different like degree of words that you should and shouldn't do that I, I have to separate my brain from both mediums. So can you talk a little bit about creating scenes? So yours went from a Christmas movie to a fall harvest or fall situated film. Yes. And how did you think of your scenes in this nine act movie? And was it important to the actual place where the, these conversations and activities like, took place? Like the setting or like the whole setting? The, like the individual settings, the individual scenes. I have my vision. So I created and crafted my story of what I think it should be like the diner, the coffee shop, whatever. But I know once they get on location, that's going to change because they may not have a coffee shop to work with. So they may turn it into a bowling alley. Um, so yeah, so I tell my story the way I see it, knowing that by the time it gets to the director and the cinematographer and everybody, it's going to get changed. So my scenes are... I, I try, even though I wanted to set it in Beth, in Bethlehem, PA, when I turned it into just Jake, I didn't give it a city. I just made it a city. I think that's a good, a good move, unless it's specific to the story, like Bethlehem, PA, the star, it had to be Bethlehem. But for this one, they actually are shooting it in Colorado, Colorado Springs right now, because they live there. So I would never, ever have sent it to Colorado Springs, but because that's where they live. That's where they're shooting it. So they are doing things that I didn't really have in the story. When I changed it to Oktoberfest, but I kept it in Bethlehem, I just made it generic. So would you recognize your story? I mean, will you recognize it? They sent me the new script. It's now written by me and Taylor Bird, who's the executive producer's son. He's worked on, this is his third film, I think, working with this production company. So, and that happens all the time. You know, you get rewritten, you still get your credit. I'm not there. So I don't know what they have for locations, the changes in the actors. 
the dialogue might need to be changed because, you know, the actor starts talking and they're like, oh my gosh, you have such a clipped sentence structure. I love that. I'm going to, so I've been, I mean, I've been rewritten to look at it that way, but it's the same structure, the same story, the same themes, the same main characters, but they've altered things for the location, for the budget and for the, like the unions. Like I had, I had five kids that she was mentoring. And then one kid that was like the star kid that reminded her of the boy that just Jake, they just took it to one kid. So, cause it's, it's, it's cheaper. I mean, it, you got, if you have five kids on set, now you've got all these kids that are underage, you need teachers on set, you need a nurse on set. So there's so many things that I don't know as a writer, I'm just writing what I see. So they take it and fix it to be specific to what they need. And they did send me the new script and I did open it and read the first page and then close it. (laughs) I couldn't get any further than that just yet. I I know it's going to be splendid and perfect. And I'm so excited to see the movie. And I've really been enjoying all the behind the scenes footage that the director and Rob Mays, who's the, who plays Jake have been posting. So it's been very fun, but yeah, it's, I I don't know if I'm going to be able to read the script right away, which is another reason why I love having the book rights because the novel is based off of the original script that they purchased. So it's, my story fully. So yeah, this has been a fun adventure. What are your expectations for the novel once you get it out there? Do you expect it to sell better than your previous novels? Are you hoping? What are your what are your hopes and dreams? I, mean, I know it got picked up by a publisher. So can you talk yeah, a little bit? About- I have no idea because every book I write I think is awful and I'm petrified to put it out in the world just because just because. Um, I've never written an adult book. I've never written a romance book. I'm, I'm petrified I'm going to get attacked because I don't know what I'm doing. I'm always in that, what is that imposter syndrome? You know, always. But I, I am very trusting of my publisher because this is what she does. So I sent her the book. Actually, yesterday I sent her, she said, hey, can you change these things before we get into edits? Cause this is how we do it. So I sent it back yesterday and she just messaged me today. I read the changes briefly. I just sent it to the editor. She'll be in touch with you and she knows what we like and how we like it. So she'll get your book ready to go. So that makes me feel tremendously uh, relieved that I'm not on my own and that I can trust them to really make it exactly what it needs to be. And because I'm not responsible for all the like publishing and interior files and covers and all that stuff. I'm, I'm really spending my time and my budget to explore marketplaces, blogs, podcasts, blogs, reviewers in the romance genre so that I can get some more buzz. Like, I don't know if you you guys are writers. I don't know if you know this, but you can, you can put your book on Goodreads before it comes out and then you have that link. So I already have 11 people that have my book on their shelf and it doesn't come out for eight months, almost nine months. So that's really exciting. What is remarkable about you is that you've so fully embraced the the writing life and all the vicissitudes that come along with that. Do you have any final words of encouragement for 
writers who maybe feel like giving up or they don't know what their next move is going to be. Do you have any words of encouragement? So when I first started writing my very first writing conference, I think it was like 2016, 18, something like that. Somebody said the ones who make it never give up. And when I am ready to go burn all my books and never write another word, just use pictures for the rest of my life, I remember that. And I tell myself, the ones who make it never give up. And I've watched people fall off. I've watched people that I've seen be very successful hustling, but they're like maybe hustled too much, fall off, or people that have never make, made it fall off. So my first suggestion is just to encourage you to not give up. And the second thing is to be open to pivot. Just say, yes, you can always think this isn't rocket science. We're not doing brain surgery. No one's going to die if we fail. Just say yes, and then figure out how to do it. There are tons of resources out there to figure out how to do it. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid or foolish to not invest in your business. I've spent lots of hundreds of thousands of dollars through 10 years of doing this to get better and to learn the things I don't know and pay people who do. So if you want to move up the ladder, you there's things you have to do. I guess the the quickest way to explain it, guys, is I like to think of bands. You think of the like the garage band, and then you've got like the cover band, right? And then the professional band, and then the superstar. You you can't like no one becomes, no one says, I think I'll be the superstar, right? That just comes. But if you put in the time and effort of a garage band, and then you're like upset that you're not getting the notoriety and paycheck of a professional band, that's on you. So if your writing needs to get better or your publishing quality needs to get better, then you need to put in more time and money to be that professional. If you're happy being a garage band, then God bless. That's awesome too. Like there's, there's no wrong answer, but just know which one you're going after and then be accountable to the pros and cons of that choice. I think that's such a great way to, to end. I love that quote that the people who make it are those that don't give up. I also hear in that a bit of pace yourself. Not that you are not intense and that you get stuff done. I don't think you're saying that, but I hear you saying that it really is. I once heard someone say that writing is like a series of short sprints. It's really not a marathon because if you look at people that are in a marathon, they're gaunt and they're not really healthy people. <laughs> you look at the people that are sprinters, you said the world-class sprinters, they're all just you know muscular and healthy and vibrant. And that actually was a really good message to me because it also helped me realize sometimes that you get up, you complete something, but you got to get up and run that next hundred yards. So anyway, I, I love the idea of pacing. Yeah, no, that's really good, David. And, and I think you, you hit something with you get up, you have a spurt and then you're down and you're up and you're down and to, to enjoy the lull, like to be patient and say, wow, I have nothing to do right now. This is nice. I'm going to go bake something or, you know, something non-writing related. And then when you do have those wins, like it's crazy. Like when I, when I spoke at that summit last week, I mean, it was insane. My, it was four nights of like crazy 500 people, like, you know, insane. And, and then there's a lull and then I'm like, okay, so I can go 
fix my bio on Goodreads because it's not correct anymore. And, and just pacing yourself that, that you're not, there's writing and there's business and you have to do both. So yeah, I think that's good. I like that sprinting idea. This has been such a joy to have you back, Jamie. Maybe we'll have you back in another couple of years. Uh, maybe you'll be the superstar by then and you'll have nothing to do with us. <laughs> Never. <laughs> we're, we're so grateful for your time and just the great insight that you've provided today. I know that our listeners are going to find it hugely valuable. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. I love it. Wow. What a great interview that was. I'm so excited to hear how people rethink cliffhangers and plots and scenes and maybe even see her film on television. That's really exciting. All right, let's turn to our words of the episode. Dave, I will go first. And mine is a German word, and you'll probably have to help me pronounce it because I couldn't find the pronunciation online. So if I say it wrong, help me out. It's Freudenfreude. Did I say it close, do you think? Do you th I think so. I think that's I think that's okay. it. Freudenfreude. Freudenfreude. And it's the opposite of schadenfreude, which is the unattractive human tendency to take pleasure in the misery of others. So this is the opposite. Freudenfreude is finding pleasure in another person's good fortune. And I was thinking about just, especially in the social media world where everybody is parading around their successes and it looks like these successes came overnight and they didn't work as hard as you and and it's really easy to not delight in somebody else's successes. But what I love about this is, you know, delight in them and feel pleasure for these other people because they did put in the hard work and good happened to them. So I, I love the word Freudenfreude. I love it too. I am trying to learn German. My ancestors are all German. In fact, my dad did not speak English until he was six. He was He spoke German until he was six years old, only German until he was six years old. So I love the word Freudenfreude. And you know what I love is that it comes on the heels of this great interview with Jamie, and we had interviewed her before. And just to see her growth, I have to say that I took pleasure in her success and made me feel really happy for her. And so I think I, I, is, I don't know if this is an emotion, Freudenfreude, I felt that emotion as I listened to her talk about her success. Yes, you experienced Freudenfreude. I did yeah. not experience Schadenfreude. Thank goodness. <laughs> that would make us really miserable human beings. <laughs> All right, Dave. So what's your word of the episode? I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> so my word is preternatural, preternatural, P-R-E-T-E-R-N-A-T-U-R-A-L, preternatural. And it's this idea of something that is beyond what is normal or natural. So you could say something like winter had arrived with preternatural speed. So it came more quickly than what was normal or natural. Or his shooting ability as a basketball player was preternatural. So it was beyond. I mean, I would say that Stefan Curry's shooting ability is preternatural. His three-point shooting is preternatural. So I think it's a great word. It's kind of, it feels like a, a prehistoric word, maybe because it has P-R-E at the beginning of it. I've seen that word written many times, and I don't know if I've ever actually stopped to look up the exact definition. I maybe kind of understood it in the context of which it was written, but it's a really useful word. 
How do you think it's different than supernatural? I think supernatural has a like a sci-fi quality to it, like not natural, whereas preternatural seems to be in the real world and just extraordinary. That is a good nuance. I think that's exactly right. Supernatural has the idea of some sort of transcendent out of this world, whereas preternatural is is something that is obviously within the scope of this world, but just amazing. You know? Yeah, I love that word. I love that word so much. Thank you for sharing it. I'm really glad you shared it today. All right. Well, that is another episode of our podcast. I loved it. I hope you all loved it. And well, let us know what you took away from it. All right. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. Write.